welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Hello, thanks for joining me today on another episode. After saying I thought we were done with gastric pathology, I had a number of people contact me to say, you haven't covered peptic ulcer disease. So sorry about that, guys. Thought I had, but obviously I was wrong. So let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is still the upper GI esophagogastric module from the general surgical curriculum. And our operation or topics we're going to be covering today is peptic ulcer disease. The reason I thought we'd covered this topic is because there is a bit of overlap between gastroesophageal reflux disease and hiatus hernias. So some of this will be hashing over things that we've already talked about, but I'll try to be comprehensive and give a little bit of extra information about some interesting aspects of this topic. So firstly, a definition. Peptic ulcer disease covers a number of entities which are all united by the presence of mucosal ulceration, which is secondary to the effects of gastric acid. And this can cover both simple ulceration in the stomach or duodenum or complications including perforation and bleeding. It's a relatively common disorder. Um, The lifetime risk of a duodenal ulcer is approximately 4%. And men are more likely to get ulceration than female at about a three-to-one ratio and usually happens in the older population groups. The long-term recurrence rates in somebody who's had peptic ulcer disease is about 12%. And lucky for us, the incidence of acute presentations with complications from peptic ulcer disease has markedly decreased in the last 30 to 40 years thanks to PPI treatment and also the identification of Helicobacter pylori in the pathogenesis of this condition, thanks to Barry Marshall, an Australian physician who identified Helicobacter pylori as being causative for peptic ulceration, and also our ability to treat Helicobacter pylori and therefore stop the development of associated complications. Moving into the risk factors for the development of peptic ulcer disease. We've mentioned Helicobacter pylori, and basically 90% of the peptic ulceration that we see nowadays is associated with Helicobacter pylori infection. Helicobacter pylori is a gram-negative rod, and it has the ability to cause ulceration by a number of mechanisms. Firstly, it increases the gastrin secretion that occurs when you eat a meal, it decreases the gastric mucus production, which is, uh, forms a layer that helps to protect the gastric mucosa from the gastric acid. And it also decreases the duodenal bicarbonate secretion, which therefore causes a loss of that protection in the duodenum to the gastric acid. And the bacteria itself is pretty smart in that it can survive in the highly acidic environment of the stomach by using its flagella to invade through that mucus layer, protective layer, and to stay away from the acid of the stomach. The diagnosis of Helicobacter pylori can be made in a number of ways. Often patients will be referred with a breath test from the GP. This is a breath test where patients are given a labelled 
urea tablet and the helicobacter pylori basically are able to change the urea into carbon dioxide and the breath test can measure whether or not carbon dioxide that's labeled like the urea was is exhaled and therefore give an indication about whether or not the patient is positive for helicobacter pylori. It does have significant false negatives though. Another test can be a blood test looking at serology, but this only tells you whether or not the patient has ever had infection before, not if they are currently infected. There's a faecal test that can be done looking for helicobacter pylori infection. This test can establish whether or not there is an active infection by looking for helicobacter pylori antigens in the stool. The gold standard tests really, though, are obtained through endoscopy with a biopsy. The Biopsy can be looked at under microscopy to actually visualize the gram-negative rods themselves on the specimen, and it's worth having a little look at the um, different stains that they can do to look for Helicobacter pylori. The other way is you can do a rapid urease test, which is also known as a CLO test or a HUT test, and this is where you place a biopsy sample of tissue on a special slide and this has the ability to identify changes in pH. And if the helicobacter is present, it will convert the urea in the test to ammonia and carbon dioxide and change the pH and therefore the color of the test. So that's a, another highly sensitive way of identifying whether helicobacter pylori infection is present. The second most common risk factor for the development of peptic ulcer disease is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And this is the commonest cause after Helicobacter pylori. It also has a cumulative effect if there is concomitant Helicobacter pylori infection. And basically, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have a topical effect on the mucosa of the upper gastrointestinal tract, causing superficial erosions, which can then expose the submucosa to acid and therefore lead to ulceration. NSAIDs are also implicated much more commonly than helicobacter is in patients who are presenting with a perforation as their primary presenting complaint. Other less common causes of peptic ulcer disease include gastronomas or Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, which we talked about in the last episode. Tumors can also be a cause of ulceration. They're not technically under the umbrella of peptic ulceration because they are ulcers because of another cause, but you can get benign or malignant tumors causing ulceration. Patients who are older are more likely to have ulcers, and patients who drink alcohol also have a high incidence of ulceration. Other causes include acute physiological stress, such as in an acute illness, so what we call stress ulcers. Smoking increases your risk of ulceration, steroid use, and other problems such as gastrointestinal dysmotility disorders or hiatus hernias with Cameron's ulcers. Moving on to how patients present when they have peptic ulcer disease. The typical history is of epigastric discomfort, which may be a gnawing or stabbing or burning type pain. And this can extend into the back depending on the location of the ulcer, especially if there is perforation or extension into the pancreas. And typically the story is that the pain happens early after meals within a few minutes. And that is more consistent with a gastric ulcer, I guess, or it may be up to an hour or two after a meal, which is more con consistent with a duodenal ulcer. Patients may also present with anemia and symptoms of anemia if they have had bleeding or oozing of that ulcer. 
They could present with an acute bleed with hematemesis, melina, or hematochesia. And some patients will have an incidental fecal occult blood test positive, and that's how it's detected. Approximately 5-6% to 6% of patients will present with an acute perforation, which will lead to peritonitis and emergency intervention. Some patients can have weight loss and early satiety, which may be due to the pain and food avoidance, but also should be a red flag to rule out a malignant ulcer. It's uncommon, but inflammation, especially around the pylorus, can cause a gastric outlet obstruction. But the majority of patients will have no symptoms and be completely asymptomatic in relation to their diagnosis. Also, you may note that some of those symptoms are pretty vague and also can easily be confused with presentations for other pathologies that you may be aware of. This may include gastric cancer, acute cholecystitis, biliary colic, pancreatitis, ischemic heart disease, and even things like gastroparesis. So it's important to have a wide consideration of the possible diagnoses when patients are presenting with epigastric pain. Let's talk briefly about the diagnosis of peptic ulceration. The diagnosis depends really on the presentation. It can be found asymptomatically or electively with more than 90% of ulcers picked up at endoscopy. Ulceration in the more distal portion of the duodenum should raise concerns for a gastronoma, as we talked about in the last podcast. And also, all gastric ulcers should raise a concern about an underlying malignancy and be biopsied, especially ulcers that have an associated mass lesion, have abnormal changes of the rest of the mucosa, or are resistant to treatment. Some patients may present with their emergency presentation with either bleeding or perforation, in which case imaging, endoscopy, or surgery may be the modalities that confirm the diagnosis. Management of peptic ulceration, again, really does depend on the presentation. So let's focus first on uncomplicated peptic ulcer disease. So this is peptic ulcer disease that is not associated with bleeding, perforation, or gastric outlet obstruction. The principles of management are helicobacter pylori eradication, acid suppression, and avoiding reversible risk factors. So helicobacter pylori eradication is something that's done with, in Australia, we say HP7, which is a combination of a PPI, usually a meprazole, 20 milligrams, one grams of amoxicillin, and 500 milligrams of clarithromycin, BD, for 14 days. At the end of the treatment protocol, eradication can be confirmed either with a helicobacter pylori breath test, the urease breath test, Or if there's an ulcer and you want to have another look at it to make sure it's healed, you can repeat the biopsies and either do a CLO or a histopathological examination to confirm eradication. There are some second and third line options for treatment antibiotics. It's worth having a look at the therapeutic guidelines for those, but usually we would start with amoxicillin or clarithromycin in the absence of a confirmed resistant strain. This includes the PPI, which is key to acid suppression. In terms of treating reversible risk factors, patients should be avoiding non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and that includes aspirin. And patients should also be advised to quit smoking and limit their alcohol intake. 
I'm not 100% clear on the indications for a repeat endoscopy to confirm healing of an ulcer. From what I've seen for gastric ulcers, we would always confirm that that ulcer has healed with a repeat endoscopy. But for patients with duodenal ulceration, if it's uncomplicated, usually we wouldn't. But I'm sure that if you were concerned that that would be an indication to go back and have a look. If you have a refractory ulcer, so an ulcer that has not healed despite helicobacter pylori eradication and high-dose PPI, first thing to do is firstly check with the patient and make sure that they really have stopped their NSAIDs, reduced their alcohol, quit smoking, and that they are being compliant with their PPI. Confirm that the helicobacter pylori has been eradicated with a repeat clo test and histology. If there's any concern that the patient is not being compliant with their medication, you can check their compliance with a gastrin level. The use of a PPI should suppress acid secretion, so this should subsequently cause gastrin level to increase. So if you have a normal gastrin level, then you don't have adequate acid suppression. If you have ulcers in an unusual position or you have refractory peptic ulcer disease, it's also worth considering a gastronoma and Zollinger-Ellison syndrome like we talked about on the last podcast with fasting gastrin levels or with a provocative secretion test. If despite having eradicated the helicobacter pylori, confirming adequate acid suppression, making sure the patient's compliant with their medications, stopping alcohol, stopping NSAIDs, and stopping smoking, you still have refractory peptic ulcer disease, and this is a very rare scenario, then that would be a situation where you may consider definitive surgery, which is usually a resection of the acid-bearing area of the stomach with a distal gastrectomy and and, basically an antrectomy, Um, and the alternative is a highly selective vagotomy. Sometimes vagotomy is combined with resection. These are pretty old school procedures. We don't do these so much anymore now that we have PPIs, but it's good to know that that may be a situation where you would consider an operation. Time to talk about the more interesting parts of peptic ulcer disease. So this is the management of complicated peptic ulcer disease. We're going to talk about bleeding peptic ulcer, perforation associated with a peptic ulcer, and gastric outlet obstruction. Starting off with a bleeding peptic ulcer, most patients with an acute gastrointestinal hemorrhage will stop bleeding spontaneously, but 15% of patients will have major bleeding that requires urgent treatment. So the treatment of a bleeding peptic ulcer really depends on the clinical presentation and your assessment about the volume of bleeding. There are multiple causes of bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract, of which peptic ulcer disease is only one. Differentials for the causes of upper GI bleeding include esophageal varices, Mallory Weiss tear, gastric or esophageal cancers, ulceration, vascular malformation, esophagitis, and even aortic graft issues such as an aortoduodenal fistula, which nobody ever wants to see. The steps of management include resuscitation, investigation, and management. Resuscitation should be as per the CRISP protocol, CRISP being the um, management of the critically ill surgical patient course that the Royal Australian College of Surgeons run. So in general, this involves two large-bore IV cannulae, crystalloid infusion, 
nasogastric and an indwelling catheter if required, reversing any clotting abnormalities, sending bloods, including an FBE, UEC, CMP, LFTs, coagulation studies, and group and save, and considering the use of uncross-matched blood or a massive transfusion protocol in somebody who's significantly unwell. Investigation of the cause of the bleeding include a history and examination. You want to take a history about whether or not the patient's had this problem before, any known malignancies, whether or not they have evidence of liver disease or risk factors for liver disease. Examination may include an examination for chronic liver failure, examination of the abdomen, and importantly, a clinical assessment about the urgency of the situation based upon that patient's general appearance and observations. A gastroscopy is usually the next step in investigating a upper GI bleed, the urgency of which depends on the patient's clinical situation. If there's evidence of abdominal tenderness suggestive of a perforation, you may consider imaging prior to gastroscopy. Finally, management of the condition. So initially this would start with a PPI infusion. Usually I would give 80 milligrams of IV pantoprazole stat and then start an infusion of IV pantoprazole. Following this, usually a gastroscopy will not only diagnose the condition, but also has the ability to be therapeutic. Some key tips to doing a endoscopy for bleeding include having the interventional gastroscope available, which has the ability to put instruments down the gastroscope. Also has the ability to pump water and making sure you have a good pump so that you can wash away clots and also having uh, suction there so that you can suck away the water and clots in order to identify the bleeding point and be able to control it. Typically, these patients should all be intubated due to the high risk of aspiration and also a likely prolonged endoscopy. The endoscopic therapies available to help control bleeding include an injection of adrenaline, the use of a heater probe or bipolar diathermy to coagulate the vessel, and directly clipping the bleeding vessel with something like an Avesco clip. In addition, topical hemostatic sprays can also be sprayed onto the ulcer to help control bleeding. I can't possibly move on from talking about bleeding ulcers and endoscopy without mentioning the forest classification. This classification labels different appearances of the ulcers and appearances of the bleeding into type 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 2C, and 3. And these different classification types correlate with the likelihood of that patient re-bleeding. So a forest type 1A is an ulcer with a bleeding arterial jet of blood. Type 1B is oozing or venous ooze. Type 2A is where you have an ulcer with a visible vessel that's not bleeding. Type 2B is an adherent clot. And type 2C is a black spot on the ulcer. This is usually a sign of a recent bleed at that site. And type 3 is a clean-based ulcer. Basically, a forest classification ulcer 1A with that active pulsatile bleeding has a re-bleeding risk around 50%. And an ulcer with, for example, a visible vessel may have a 40% risk of re-bleeding with that black spot or red spot in the base has a less than 10% chance of a re-bleed. 
patients who've had successful endoscopic management of their bleeding may benefit from an early relook in 24 hours um, with further treatment of the ulcer to reduce the chance of having a rebleed. If a patient does have a rebleed, the management guidelines say that you can take the patient back for a second go at endoscopic therapy and that that doesn't increase their morbidity or mortality compared to going directly to theatre with the first rebleed. But if they've rebleed, rebled a second or third time, or if they are very frail, have other medical conditions, you may consider going to surgery um, earlier or at that second or third rebleed, you would consider going to theatre. So that does take us on to surgery for bleeding. And the indications, as you've probably guessed already, are failed endoscopic management or control of bleeding, ongoing bleeding after two attempts at endoscopic control or earlier if the patient is elderly and has other medical problems. It is important, though, that you do do the endoscopy first to know where the patient's bleeding from so that you know where to cut with your operation. And there's a number of different approaches to bleeding ulcers depending on the location of the bleeding. For example, in the exam, if there was a bleeding ulcer in the first part of the duodenum, my approach would be to do a laparotomy to perform a duodenotomy on the superior aspect of the first part of the duodenum, which is usually carried through the pylorus. I would then locate the ulcer and place a suture, usually a 3OPDS, both above and below the ulcer in a box pattern. And then if that doesn't control it, then in a transverse fashion, because most of the vessels are traveling in the longitudinal aspect of the duodenum. I would avoid suturing through the ulcer base because this friable necrotic tissue uh, often doesn't hold the sutures and you can make the bleeding worse. The pyloroduodenotomy, I would then close transversely as a finny pyloroplasty so that I don't compromise the diameter of the lumen. If you cannot control the bleeding with local suturing, you may require direct ligation of the gastroduodenal artery. And it's very, very rare that you would need to do a formal antrectomy to gain control of a bleeding ulcer, but that's always a backup plan. In some situations, embolization may be a suitable alternative or a suitable second line to endoscopy. Patients who may benefit from this approach include patients who are medically unfit for an endoscopy, but they obviously have to have satisfactory renal function. If somebody has a bleeding tumor, it may be much more difficult to control this endoscopically, but angioembolization can be quite helpful. And in some instances of patients who initially have control but re-bleed um, after endoscopic therapy or fail endoscopic therapy, you may think about embolization. It could also be helpful if patients have had previous surgery and have altered anatomy and you're having difficulty accessing the source of the bleeding. For a gastric ulcer, it's a little bit different because you want to get a biopsy of that ulcer if you can. The options here include a oversewing of the ulcer, excision of the ulcer with a wedge and repair, or entrectomy or distal gastrectomy. In the exam, I will try not to go down the pathway of talking about vagotomies or anti-acid surgical procedures as part of the acute management of a bleeding 
ulcer. Uh, so I would I would avoid this. <laughs> I think that that's a, a bit of a complex, controversial topic you'd try not to be talking about. Moving on now to perforated peptic ulcer disease. The presentation of perforation, we should all know by now, patients usually present with a sudden onset of pain, very severe in the upper abdomen. It may be, though, that that settles over the next few hours, and sometimes that does migrate down the right side as the acidic fluid will travel down the right paracolic gutter, which is a trick for young players with that presentation. So it's good to have a high index of suspicion. Patients may have evidence of sepsis or SERS with tachycardia, hypotension, or fevers. Patients will usually have signs of peritonism and a erect chest x-ray may show free gas under the diaphragm and a CT often with oral contrast can demonstrate whether or not the patient has a perforation with an active leak, will demonstrate free fluid, free gas and can help rule out other causes of the presentation such as a perforated tumour. The management of this condition is resuscitation confirming the diagnosis, management, which is usually operative, and treating the underlying cause to avoid recurrence. Resuscitation we have gone through already. This would be as per the CRISP protocol. The key here is early broad-spectrum antibiotics, an IV PPI, fluid resuscitation, replacing electrolytes, maximizing any comorbidities that you can considering a nasogastric tube, especially to reduce ongoing spillage, and talking to ICU or HTU about whether or not that patient may need to go there postoperatively. In terms of confirming the diagnosis, free gas is usually sufficient with a good history to be indicative of the diagnosis. And like I said, a CT may be helpful if your history or exam suggests a potential alternative underlying cause from simple peptic ulcer disease, such as a malignancy. Patients who are very unstable, though, should go directly to theatre. The operative plan will depend on the location of the perforation. You may get this information from the CT scan. Most perforated ulcers are duodenal ulcers and are usually located on the anterior surface of D1, just distal to the pylorus, which is lucky for us because that makes it nice and easy to access. If you're unclear, then an alternative to starting with a laparotomy may be to do a diagnostic laparoscopy to identify the source of the free gas because your laparotomy incision, if that's what you're going to progress to, could be in a very different location if this is a duodenal ulcer compared to if this is a perforated diverticulitis, for example. Whether or not you proceed with the operation laparoscopic or open will depend on your level of experience. should also depend on patient factors. If the patient's very unstable, they may not tolerate pneumoperitoneum. In addition, if the patient has peritonitis, especially if it's been going for more than 24 hours, it would be a better idea to do an open washout to ensure good control of sepsis. And if there's food in the abdomen as well, this is an indication to be opening up and scooping out those carrots. The principles of operating on a perforated peptic ulcer is lavage, 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 according to a recent Anscoza tute I was listening to. You obviously need to localize where it is, assess its size, 
and determine what repair you're going to be doing. There are a few options. The most common repair would be an omental patch or gram patch. This was first published in 1937 and basically uses the patient's own omentum to plug the hole. Most commonly, this would be used for a duodenal ulcer. Talking through my operative approach to a gram patch or a mental patch, I would start by doing a diagnostic laparoscopy and confirming the location of the hole, as well as confirming the size of the defect and that it wasn't too large to be attempting a closure with a gram patch. After confirming a duodenal perforation, I would perform an upper midline laparotomy. I would then prepare a well-vascularized piece of the patient's omentum. Following that, I would place three full-thickness interrupted transverse sutures with a 3OPDS on a tapered needle, and I would leave these open through one side of the ulcer and then the other side of the ulcer. I would then place the well-vascularized piece of omentum over the hole and would tie those sutures to secure that tongue of omentum in place whilst not tying them too tight to uh, cause ischemia of the omentum. I also place a holding suture at the apex of the omentum to ensure that the omentum doesn't slip out from the hole. Following this, I would do extensive lavage of the abdominal cavity, place a abdominal drain adjacent to my repair, and then close my midline laparotomy. I would also make sure that a nasogastric tube was placed intraoperatively and leave that on free drainage with four-hourly aspirates. Postoperatively, I would be keeping that patient kneel by mouth in the first two days, and after that I would perform a gastrograph and swallow, looking for evidence of a leak and ensuring that the stomach is emptying normally. After that, I would start the patient on a clear fluid diet. I would also continue the patients on broad-spectrum IV antibiotics, especially in the context of extensive contamination. I would also ensure that I had stopped any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that that patient was on and make sure that I started helicobacter pylori eradication. And I would also confirm that eradication one month after starting treatment. Other options for a patch especially in a situation where a patient may not have any omentum available, such as in a previous gastric cancer or an omentectomy for ovarian surgery perhaps. Uh, you can also use the falciform ligament or the small bowel serosa as an alternative patch. For a gastric ulcer, you could do an excision, such as a wedge excision and a primary closure. And this enables you to get a full thickness biopsy, which may be helpful in ruling out a malignancy. If the location is not favorable to do a wedge, then you would want to debride the ulcer edges and attempt a primary closure. And you can also place a patch here to reinforce your closure if you think that that's required. In addition, the same principles apply to ensuring adequate lavage, uh, placing a drain and also a nasogastric tube. If there is an obvious tumor, a large area of necrosis, or you have significant concerns about that area of ulceration healing, then you can always consider an anatomical or oncological excision. And to be honest, it's probably better to be safe than sorry if it's a very concerning appearance. The exception to this rule is a perforated ulcer in the pre-pyloric area. These are notoriously difficult to heal. If they've 
perforated, then you can manage them as per a duodenal ulcer with a patch. And you don't necessarily need to do a gastrectomy or an antrectomy for these. But with all gastric ulcers, especially if you primarily close them or you're not able to get a biopsy at the time of the operation for whatever reason, then it's really important to do a gastroscopy to take biopsies and also to confirm healing. The other topic which is highly examinable when talking about peptic ulcer disease is a large duodenal ulcer, more than 50% of the duodenal circumference or kissing ulcers that are going to make putting a patch on difficult and also could potentially narrow the duodenal lumen. If you can't close a hole with three or four sutures, then you need to be thinking that this ulcer is too big to control with a patch and start thinking about other ways to repair that hole. This is where the concept of the difficult duodenal stump comes in. And we did touch on this briefly with the fantastic episode I did with Marianne Johnson, the upper GI surgeon, who at the end of the episode, we had a bit of a chat about the difficult duodenal stump. There are a few different options in this situation, which depend mostly on where the hole is, how big it is, and the quality of the tissue. The best option, if possible, is to do a resection. So this would be an antrectomy, where if you can staple off distal to the ulcer, which hopefully is in D1, and perform an antrectomy with a Rouen wire reconstruction, then this can be an effective way to get you and the patient out of a tricky situation. You may need to cockerize the duodenum in order to give yourself mobility of the duodenal wall in order to dissect it out. And the main concern here is that if you're starting to get down towards the junction of D1, D2 or into the second part of the duodenum, that you risk damaging adjacent structures such as the bile duct or the pancreas or some of the other vessels that are around there. If you can't perform a distal antrectomy, so if the ulcer is too large, if it's too distal, such as in D2, then it's a really difficult situation. If possible, you can mobilize the duodenum by cockerizing the duodenum and then try to suture the anterior wall of D2 to the distal edge of the ulcer base and then roll the top part of the duodenum over that and suture that to the proximal edge of the ulcer base. In this situation, you'll also need to control proximally, usually with an antrectomy and a Rouen-Y reconstruction. And this is called a Nissen repair. If you can't even do that, then you're again in a bit of trouble. The approach that I've been told is that you can try and close that duodenal hole over a big Foley catheter to try to create a controlled fistula, which you'll then slowly remove um, over a long period of time to cause a duodenocutaneous fistula. You can also try and add another drain uh, through the healthy tissue or the wall of the duodenum to try to reduce back pressure on your repair because, again, you're going to be suturing pretty unhealthy tissue together around that foley. So the question you have to ask yourself is whether or not that is going to heal. In these situations, it's good to do a thorough lavage and to place lots and lots of drains around there because the reason that this is all going to break down is if there's infection, if there's an uncontrolled leak, 
And then other things that to consider are to maximize that patient's comorbidities and general status. So consider feeding and how you're going to feed that patient so that you're maximizing their nutrition and controlling any other comorbidities such as ischemic heart disease for perfusion, as well as their diabetes control. Hopefully we'll never find ourselves in this situation, but if you do, it's always good to call for help from an experienced colleague because it's called the difficult duodenum for a reason. After thinking there wasn't that much to talk about for peptic ulcer disease, we're already 35 minutes into this episode, but the last thing I want to talk about is gastric outlet obstruction. This is a pretty rare complication of peptic ulcer disease. It's usually a result of a large edematous inflamed ulcer sitting in the proximal duodenum or in the distal stomach in the pyloric antrum. And the inflammation can cause obstruction or a chronic inflammation and scarring can cause a stricture. The symptoms are of gastric outlet obstruction, which is vomiting of undigested food, uh, upper abdominal bloating, early satiety, and nausea. And the characteristic electrolyte abnormalities that we see in these patients is a hypokalemic, hypochloremic metabolic acidosis, which has a paradoxically acidic urine. The diagnosis may be made on imaging with a CT scan with a large distended stomach and maybe inflammation or narrowing at the pylorus. And also on gastroscopy, you'll find a grossly distended stomach with a narrowed pylorus, which may be edematous and inflamed. The initial management of gastric outlet obstruction is irrespective of the cause. So this includes IV access, fluid resuscitation, correction of electrolyte and acid-base abnormalities, a high-dose IV PPI in this case, and also consideration of nutritional access. The next step is figuring out whether this is an acute or a chronic obstruction as well as identifying the cause and ruling out a malignancy, which is obviously treated very different than obstruction from peptic ulceration. For an acute peptic ulceration-associated gastric outlet obstruction, these will usually improve with conservative medical management, mainly because it is actually that inflammation that's narrowing the lumen. So by starting them on a PPI, decompressing the stomach, and usually treating Helicobacter pylori, you can reduce that inflammation and result in resolution of their outlet obstruction. They should have a gastroscopy, though, to rule out a malignant cause. For a chronic gastric outlet obstruction, this usually doesn't improve with medical management. This is more likely this is related to fibrosis and scarring from that chronic inflammation rather than the edema itself. Not to say the edema hasn't contributed to making this a acute on chronic presentation. More than 90% of these patients with a chronic obstruction will require surgery. The key here is to rule out a malignancy with a gastroscopy and biopsy, because again, this is treated very differently. Some patients may have endoscopic dilatation with a balloon as first-line treatment, and a good percentage of these patients will improve about 80% with 50 to 70% of those patients having a durable response to dilatation. And you can repeat the dilatation if required. If patients fail dilatation or it's not considered appropriate in their situation, then you could proceed to surgery. This will usually be a distal 
gastrectomy or an antrectomy to remove the acid-bearing cells of the stomach as well as remove the area that has strictured and usually a reconstruction with a Ruan Y. I, again, would not be talking in the exam about vagotomy in these situations. With the resection, you will also get a good biopsy of the area to make sure you have definitively ruled out malignancy. Oh, what a big topic. I won't say that's the last topic we're going to be covering for the gastric curriculum because I'm sure that somebody will let me know about something else that I've missed, but I'm glad you let me know and I hope you've learned something from this episode. I definitely have a few questions to ask a specialist. I think we need to ask how and when you should confirm healing of an ulcer, when to resect with peptic ulcer disease if it's refractory and what resection to do how exactly you expose and ligate the gastroduodenal artery for a bleeding ulcer, how to approach a bleeding gastric ulcer, whether you would do a wedge, whether you would close it primarily with sutures, and also the management of a perforated gastric ulcer and when you would consider a wedge, when you would close and patch, and when you would resect. So it'll be good to clear those up with a specialist on the podcast soon. For those that have been following along with this podcast since the beginning, you may have noticed a couple of different musical interludes that I use today. I just wanted to shout out to my amazing fiance, Adam, who is behind all of the guitar work for this podcast and has done an absolutely amazing job. Remember to rate, review and subscribe so that others can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>